Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I am talking to Oklahoma Watch's executive editor, Mike Sherman. And uh, Mike, first off, uh, we've created a new beat at Oklahoma Watch. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that kind of grew out of the pandemic, Ted. You know, that was an opportunity that people had uh, to step back and think about what they were doing. And then training uh, that you used to have to get on an airplane uh, to go get or stay in a hotel somewhere for three or four days uh, came right to our desktops. And this training was delivered by some folks called Trusting News. They're really interested in just that, uh, rebuilding trust in the news across political spectrums. Trevor Brown and I, our reporter, we uh, participated in some training on engaged elections. And our interest in covering democracy uh, coincided and converged with what was going on, you know, uh, misinformation about the election, claims that it was um, rigged or stolen, um, the loss of access for some voters, and some legislation making its way through various states, including our own, to uh, change the, the, uh, the access for voters. So we got interested. Okay. Now, you know, democracy is uh, not only is it not a, a common beat for news outlets in Oklahoma, um, but that's kind of an unusual beat in general in the news business, isn't it? It is. Um, because most of the time when we cover, uh, when you talk about politics and elections, the focus is on the candidates and the, and the horse race and who's going to win and who is winning and not as much on the process um, the act of the voter. And really this legislation that is coming across uh, the country that's related to voter access, related to uh, election security, as it's called, has taken uh, the focus and expanded it to the voter. And and we've seen some, some media outlets expand to democracy. Not as many, and it's kind of cool to be a little bit on the cutting edge of it and what Trevor's done. Now, Trevor has been doing some reporting on legislation uh, that addresses voting in elections this year, right? Uh, that's certainly under that democracy umbrella. What can you tell us about that? Well, the latest uh, is, oh, is a, it relates to state questions. And so uh, this really appeals to the populist roots of Oklahoma because the state uh, is one of about 25 or 26 states that has the referendum initiatives uh, built it, baked into its system. It's been a part of the state going back to 1907 and its founding. And there's a, a, a bill that's made its way out of committee in the House, is now going to be considered by the Senate, that would change and make it harder to get on the ballot for a state initiative, citizen-led state initiative. And so the big thing is that it would have to meet certain quotas in all 77 counties. Now, you can see that being a concern in the outlying areas where, unfortunately, the news media has died. Lots of small-town papers have dried up. They don't have the kind of coverage of issues. So a legislator, for instance, said that his, his uh, constituents were surprised by what was on the ballot. 
So they want to make sure that there is a statewide effort to draw signatures from all 77 counties. At the same time, you can think of what the cost involved in that would be. And given that Oklahoma only allows 90 days from the point that a petition is approved by election, the election commission to gather all those signatures, it's a heck of a task. So that's a struggle right now. He's covering it. And that's our latest story on OklahomaWatch.org. Now, uh, one of the things that Oklahoma Watch uh, covered last year was the growing number of uncontested races in the legislature in recent years. Why is that something to watch? Well, Ted, the uh, the numbers were kind of shocking. We called it uncontested Oklahoma. And, and in two, 2020, 60% of the legislative races, House and Senate, were decided before a vote was cast in November. Think about that for a second. More than 50%. That's more than 2016 and 2018 combined. Really, it's a sign of the decay of the election process and choices for voters across the state. Of course, the root of the problem is the demise of the Democratic Party as a statewide force. Democrats put up uh, candidates in only 55 of the 126 total races in the legislature. But also, you know, we talk about Oklahoma as a top 10 state. Well, it made top 10 in that category. It had the fifth most uncontested races for any state in the country. So we think that that is a, an alarming number. We're going to be covering the filing period that's next week. Candidates will be filing for office next week to sort of determine how deep that goes. That number that number of uncontested races, it's only one measure of the lack of competitiveness of races. We want to look at what's going on in the primaries. Is, are the, is there competition or, or are candidates filing for any kind of uh, primary races? So it's not a healthy democracy when you don't have, um, you don't have healthy elections. All right, Mike Sherman, executive editor at Oklahoma Watch. Thanks for sitting in today, talking about Oklahoma Watch's new beat, Democracy, which Trevor Brown is covering. You can see all of Trevor's work and all the other investigative work by Oklahoma Watch reporters at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Munnies, who has been following the money at the legislature with the latest round of federal pandemic relief under the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA. Paul, what's the latest on the state's plans for the money? Well, the legislature uh, has a joint committee between the House and the Senate that basically evaluates some projects, and they've been taking applications for ideas and projects since uh, last October, um, and they finally said, we're going to stop here and close the portal where you can apply uh, on March 31st, last Thursday. Um, at the end of the day, they, they said they had gotten almost $18 billion in requests for projects for funding uh, across about 1,400 different kinds of projects. Okay, so uh, the request so far, you said $18 billion with a B is what's come in so far? And, and how much money is available? So they have about uh, $1.87 billion. So it's about a tenth of that total that's requested. Gotcha. Okay. Who has been among the biggest requesters of the money? 
Well, they can, um, they've had some priorities um, in terms of what they want to spend it on, including mental health and health and human services, um, infrastructure like broadband and water projects. Um, but actually, it was surprising to me, but the largest single requester was state agencies. Uh, when the portal closed, they had about $3.7 billion in projects that they've asked for. And uh, it, you mentioned infrastructure projects. Anything else that the legislature has uh, focused on so far with allocating the money? Yeah, so far they, they've kind of put some money into uh, workforce development, especially in the health professions careers. Uh, in fact, last week they sent some money or are about to send some money to some of the, the colleges around the state, uh, community colleges, and also some of the smaller um, regional univers- universities for nurse training to kind of help the, uh, the pipeline for nurses, which we saw during the pandemic was exposed as kind of um, lacking in, in terms of manpower um, for that, that profession. And do we know yet how, for example, uh, the money for nursing programs might be spent? Would that create new programs? Would there be scholarship money available? How are we going to encourage more nurses? So different programs have different focuses that they've asked for. Some of them just want equipment. Um, Some of them want upgrades in some of the facilities. Um, Some of them want money to retain and attract um, nurse uh, professors and teachers who are practically, you know, teaching labs and stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of across the board, but the legislature has basically decided to fund part of those projects right now, um, and those are kind of the first chunk of money out the door. Okay, now we, we said, you know, there's probably only uh, 10% of the money requested will actually get funded. Um, what about the projects or the ideas that that aren't going to make the cut? Well, um, we don't know exactly who all has requested yet, but um, we do know that, that, that basically they can't request under federal law, they can't spend the money on tax cuts, although that is being litigated in several federal courts across the country. Uh, they also can't spend the money on prisons or jails, um, and they also can't spend the money on sports stadiums or convention centers, which the federal government decided wasn't really a, a necessary use for this type of, type of recovery money. Okay. Now, we've talked about uh, disbursement of these funds before uh, here on Long Story Short. Um we don't know uh, how all that money is going to be spent because there's been a lot of secrecy surrounding the process. Uh, at least it had been. Is that still an issue? Yes, that's still an issue. I mean, we don't know exactly who who is requested. We know general categories, types of businesses. You know, nonprofits are there, small businesses, obviously state agencies, municipal and county governments are in that mix as well. But um, we've asked before for applications from the state, and we've been denied under the Open Records Act. They've cited some uh, part of the Purchasing Act to, to deny a request for those, just looking at the applications even. Um, and so right now they're, they're calling it temporarily confidential. Now they say once it goes through the process that the legislature and the governor approves the funding, um, obviously then it will be a public uh, document that you can inspect and see what the money is going to. But they don't want anyone to see everything that's being asked for right now because they're treating the whole thing as one giant bid for federal money. Why is that problematic? Well, we don't know exactly who's asking for money, um, and we don't know where the needs are. I mean, obviously, 10 times the amount of the money that's available, there's a lot of people who believe there's a lot of needs to be funded in the state. Um, You know, maybe they don't want a whole bunch of people up there uh, bashing down their door saying, I need this project funded because there's some secrecy over that process. But um, at the same time, we don't know exactly, you know, what is the need that they're looking at. And ultimately, the governor has the power to decide uh, which proposals get funded, doesn't he? That's right. Yeah. I mean, this time around, um, as opposed to the first 
uh, Recovery Act, CARES Act in 2020. Um, the governor now has has the ultimate authority, but he's also talking a lot with the legislature in this process. The legislature's got the process for they've got you know a joint committee that looks at these projects. They've got smaller what they call working committees that evaluate different projects in different areas. But yes, at the end of the day, it is still up to the governor once those projects get up to that level. So, is there a problem if the public doesn't know? Uh, what requests have been turned in? Um, is there anything stopping the governor from funding pet projects, brother-in-law deals, uh, without any any pressure from the public to uh, fund things that the public's interested in paying for? Well, that's that's part of the danger in keeping this a secretive process in terms of who's asking for the money, because once it goes through the process and the legislature has gone through its process and sends it to the governor it may be too late to raise questions or, you know, look at fully vet who's asking for the money. Um, and then they'll say, well, we've got to spend this money by the end of 2026. And, you know, the, the window is gone for getting applications. And so then it might be too late. And so you're just basically worried about, you know, the trains already left the station and no one can, can raise any issues about a project that's going to be funded. How, you mentioned that the, the state has called these requests temporarily confidential. Um, are, are they saying that they will release all of the requests when the decisions have been made or only the ones they're going to fund? Yes, that's an interesting phrasing that they've used to deny our records requests that we've made. Um, they say that once the projects are approved for funding, then those applications for those projects will be open. But they haven't made any kind of determination on whether or not all the rest of them that may not have gotten funded will be open. So potentially the public would never know um, $18 billion in funding requests, uh, who who needed money for what. We'd only know the 10% that actually got money. That's right. Yeah. And that $18 billion, I mean, you put that in perspective. I mean, that's more than twice what the state appropriates every year in their, their annual budget. What's next in the process for uh, spending this this allocation? So they've closed the so-called portal where you could apply for these projects um, last week, and now they're going to go back and take those project requests back through the working groups, the legislature. So they've got a lot of work to do still in the committee structure, and then obviously still got to approve the projects up the chain to the joint committee, and then finally to the governor for approval of funding. And are those uh, effectively then just recommendations from the legislature that land on the governor's desk and and he can kind of take them or leave them at his discretion? That's right. Yeah, the governor does still have the ultimate authority on all of this, but obviously wants the legislature can, to be involved in the process. All right. Uh, Paul Monies, thanks for joining us today on Long Story Short. Uh, you can read all of Paul's investigative work on the disbursement of the ARPA funds and the other topics he covers at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. He's been following two justice reform measures that are progressing in the legislature this session. Now, Keaton, you previously reported on a proposal to create uh, different felony classifications in Oklahoma. Has that gained any traction during the session? It has. We've seen Senate Bill 1646 uh, by Senator David Rader passed through the Senate, and it's now onto the House. That was a product of partly of a, of a council created through the legislature of prosecutors, lawmakers, uh, public defenders, those kind of criminal justice stakeholders that made recommendations to reclassify felony offenses. This bill takes on several of those recommendations, but also deviates in a, in a few areas. 
and and so how could that uh, be helpful? So the way it currently works in Oklahoma, which is not how it works in most states, is that the legislature codifies each crime and sets a sentencing range individually, which means over time they've kind of just been adding to this list of crimes and maybe not going back and changing the sentencing ranges very often. So it's it's disorganized and it's also justice reform advocates say it's led to Oklahoma prisoners serving longer than those in other states because the sentencing ranges are just so broad. So is that bill facing any opposition or has it got a pretty clear path? So it passed 35 to 12 in the Senate. Those who oppose it, who spoke on the Senate floor, say it's it's essentially too soft on some crimes, lowering the, the range. Uh, just doing my own research, you know, that could be going from currently three to 10 years for larceny of an automobile on the first offense to zero to seven years. So it's not a drastic change, but there is a change there. And the the main opposition from them was just that it's going to embolden criminals to commit, commit more crimes and cause our crime rate to go up. I also talked to Oklahoma County public defender, Bob Ravitz, who was on the council that, that issued the initial recommendations and he's said he couldn't support it because they've gone too far from the council's recommendations, uh, particularly in one area, changing uh, the council proposed changing 85% violent crimes where you have to serve 85% of your time in prison to 75%. That's not taken up in this bill. And he, he said he can understand lawmakers being hesitant to, to take on something that makes it look like they're being soft on violent crime. But if we're going to move the needle on incarceration, we, that's something we need to do is what he told me. Okay. If, if this gets through, when would it take effect? July 1st, 2022. So uh, a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, oh yeah. Right away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you're also following a bill that would help uh, fund local diversion and substance abuse treatment programs. Where's that? Yeah, so that's House Bill 3294 by Representative Justin Humphrey. That passed the House without objection and is now in the Senate. This was something lawmakers were supposed to do several years ago after State Question 781 passed in 2016, essentially saying if we're going to incarcerate fewer people, let's put the savings towards funding local diversion and treatment programs, but that's never happened. So why are they just now getting around to considering that legislation? So lawmakers say it's been a challenge coming up with a funding formula, a calculating formula to figure out how are we going to quantify the savings of incarcerating fewer people. Um, our our prison population has declined about 25% over the past five years, so there's been an obvious decline in savings in a couple of government groups finally got together last year and came up with a funding formula, which has allowed this legis- legislation to to start going through. So how much money are we talking about? How much could be sent out to local uh, programs? Uh, so those those different groups, uh, o- o- OMES is one. Uh, when they calculated it in fiscal year 2020, there was an estimated $10.6 million in savings. So that could fluctuate year by year, but 
looking at about $10 million a year going towards uh, these local justice systems. Do we know uh, precisely how those funds would be distributed? Uh, not yet. Representative Humphrey has said he's planning to work on legislation that would or not, or modify the bill to specify how exactly those funds will be distributed. Okay, but it, generally speaking, when we talk about diversion programs, we mean things like uh, drug court, mental health court, uh, things like that, right? Correct, yeah. There's, as we've, with state question 780, reclassifying several crimes from felonies to misdemeanors, there's been a greater uh burden or, you know, workload on, you know, local justice systems, you know, people coming in through the system charged with misdemeanors instead of charged with felonies and going to prison. So this money is supposed to help them uh, deal with, with, you know, the increased amount of people that are coming their way. All right, Keaton Ross, thanks for being here today on Long Story Short. You can read all of Keaton's coverage of the criminal justice bills working their way through the legislature this session at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch would like to give our readers and supporters an opportunity to get to know our journalists a little bit better. On April 7th at 7 p.m., we'll be hosting local lives at the KOSU studios on Film Row at 7 p.m. For $10, come down and join us for live music, drinks, and a live storytelling event where you can hear personal stories from our journalists and others told live at the KOSU studio. For more information, look at oklahomawatch.org or buy tickets at Eventbrite.